This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said the night before he died. In that same conversation with his disciples, he also said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The Apostle Paul later would write, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in another place he writes, We were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And a little further on in the same letter, he explains how we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. A new covenant, a new commandment, a new creation, newness of life, a new way of serving. Jesus has changed everything. He has brought newness into this old world. And when He comes into your life, He changes everything too. He brings a deep and lasting newness to your life. But what does that newness look like? As we began looking at Matthew chapter 9 last week, we read about how Jesus healed a paralytic, a man who could not walk, and even forgave his sins. The Jewish scribes couldn't handle the newness of a man who claimed the authority to forgive sins. Then Jesus summoned a despised tax collector to follow him as a disciple, Matthew, the author of this very gospel. And then Matthew invites Jesus to join him at his home for a party with other tax collectors and other sinners. The Pharisees couldn't handle the newness of a popular rabbi and known miracle worker sitting down to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus refuses to fit into their preconceived old world notions. As we press on in Matthew chapter 9, sometime later on, after Jesus has been feasting with tax collectors and sinners, some disciples of John the Baptist approach with a question for Jesus about fasting. So let's read Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15 to pick up where we left off last time. Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Let's stop there for just a moment and consider what's going on here. So, the disciples of John the Baptist, he's collected some students around him. Remember, John has been preaching out in the wilderness near the Jordan River. He's been baptizing people in the water and calling them to repent of their sins. And he's collected a bit of a following. Now, all along, we know that John is pointed away from himself and pointed to Jesus as the one who would come after him, the one who was mightier than he was, the one he wasn't worthy to untie his sandals, the one who would come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, John said. And so he's always pointed away from himself and to Jesus, but nevertheless, he's still got a school, as it were, a a group of students who follow him. And it's at this time that we find out they are fasting. And the Pharisees and their students are fasting. And so this is one of those places where we wonder, is it a good thing to have something in common with the Pharisees? 
Because John's disciples and the Pharisees are doing the same thing, but Jesus and his disciples are not doing the same thing. And John's disciples come to ask, why is it that you and your followers are not fasting while all these other Jewish people are fasting? And we need to set the stage a little bit to understand what's going on here. The Pharisees and the Jewish disciples of John the Baptist are, tip, are doing what Jews typically do. Uh, they had developed certain fast days uh, that are not prescribed in Scripture. They are traditions. They developed sometime after the return of the Jews to the land of Israel, after the Babylonian exile. And they developed these fast days, some of which they would put on their calendar to fast every year to mark or commemorate some terrible things that happened to them. The Babylonian exile and the destruction of the temple in particular became fast days. So unlike us, when we typically mark a holiday on the calendar, we don't, fa- we don't fast. We typically party and, and eat a lot. But for them, for these special commemorative days of tragedies in their history, they had developed the practice of fasting to remember what had happened to them. And in addition to that, the Pharisees had developed many other times for fasting that were completely traditional. We'll talk more about the significance of fasting in just a minute. But what we see here is that, in a sense, you could say Jesus and his disciples are fasting from fasting. While all the rest of the Jews are fasting from food, Jesus is feasting with tax collectors and sinners, no less. And so they notice, they notice that He's doing something different, and they want to know if they can get an explanation. Now, the way the question's worded is interesting, isn't it? Verse 14, they seem to ask two things. One of them doesn't make much sense, and the other one is the main point anyway. But they ask, first of all, why are we and the Pharisees fasting? He's asking Jesus, why are we doing this? But, of course, that's not really their point. They're wanting to know, okay, we're doing this. Why are you not doing this? And that's the question he answers. But the answer is given in a figure of speech. And it's a powerful metaphor that would have resonated to them. And we need to get some of the background there. Notice his answer in verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus is suggesting that it's inappropriate to fast as an expression of mourning and grieving right now because there's a wedding coming. And not only that, the groom is here. Now for them, that's not just a metaphor. He's not just painting a picture of a, an ordinary everyday wedding. When he says the bridegroom is here, he's talking Old Testament. He's speaking theologically and he's referring to himself as the groom of Israel. That's the Old Testament backdrop here. It reflects the truth that the Old Testament scriptures painted the relationship between the nation of Israel and God as a marriage. The stage is set for this in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, we get in a sense Yahweh, the God of Israel, coming down on Mount Sinai to meet with His people and to propose marriage to them, to initiate a covenant relationship. And chapters 19 to 24 of the book of Exodus are painting the picture of that marriage being initiated. In in Exodus 24, you get the covenant ratification ceremony where sacrifices are offered and the, the vows are exchanged. And you get the marriage being official, in a sense, in Exodus 24. Now, in the midst of that, they're already proving to be unfaithful before the ceremony is even over. However... 
Their marriage is truly, genuinely ratified at that moment. And we see then the Old Testament prophets appealing many, many times to this reality and highlighting the fact that Israel, the bride of God, the wife of God, has proven unfaithful. They have committed spiritual adultery. And the prophets repeatedly condemn them for that reality. But... There are promises in the prophets, Hosea chapter 2 especially, but there are several others in the prophets that prophesied and promised a day when that marriage would be renewed, when God would retrieve his rebellious wife and the marriage would be renewed and restored. And so when Jesus talks like this, he is saying, I am God, the groom, and I have come to fetch my bride. Now, you have to notice what Jesus is doing with this. He tweaks the imagery just a bit from the expectations. He's not talking about bride and groom coming together here. He's talking about the groom and the guests celebrating ahead of the wedding. And if you know the rest of the story through the New Testament, this imagery gets fleshed out so that the bride becomes the church, the bride of Christ. And so that the anticipation here is that the groom of Israel restores the marriage with Israel by forming a brand new people that includes Jew and Gentile together. That's the finish line. And so what we anticipate for the consummation is bride and groom coming together. That's normally what a wedding is all about, right? But Jesus here is pointing to a particular part of that to anticipate the arrival and the consummation of a new, renewed marriage. And so he's talking about that anticipation period. The groom is here and it's party time. So you're at a wedding, you don't fast, you don't mourn, you don't grieve when it's time to celebrate. That's his major point here. He is the groom, he's arrived, and he's picturing the disciples as the guests, even though we know they will become the bride. Again, twisting and tweaking the metaphor and the imagery there to push on their expectations. The point is about the anticipatory celebration of the imminent wedding to come. And then Jesus casts an ominous tone over this. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. Now, we might read that and we might think nothing of it. We might think, well, the, the groom is going to be taken away from them in the sense that the groom is going to go be with his bride in private for the wedding night. But <laughs> given that he says they will fast when the groom is taken away casts a shadow over that reality to suggest that when he says the groom will be taken away, he means he will be taken away violently. And he's anticipating his own murder to come. And so even before the marriage can be consummated, the groom will be killed. That is not what they would have expected. And so Jesus says at that time it will be appropriate to fast as an expression of mourning and grieving because the groom has died. That's why fasting will be appropriate. Now, I want to camp out here for just a minute, maybe chase a a rabbit of sorts for a minute and talk about this whole concept of fasting a little bit. What is Christian fasting? How do we need to think about this as Jesus teaches his disciples that right now, while he's there, 
it's not appropriate. It's not time for them to be fasting. Well, what do we think about it? How do we understand it from the scripture? So let me chase that down for just a minute. Fasting is quite simply abstaining from food or drink for a period of time. It can be limited to certain kinds of food or drink. Recently, it's become common to fast from things besides food or drink, like fasting from Facebook or from watching movies. However, this is not the same thing as true fasting because true fasting is withholding from yourself an essential, something you truly need. You don't really need Facebook. Did you know that fasting is not specifically a Christian practice? Fasting has been practiced as a feature of religious devotion in almost every religion throughout history. But it's not even a distinctly religious practice. Also throughout history, fasting has been practiced as both a political strategy, as in a hunger strike, and a physical health strategy. Now I'm going to say something that may shock you. Are you ready? Fasting is not a distinctly biblical practice. That is to say, in all of Scripture, God never commands His people to fast as a regular practice. Now let me qualify that before you all get out your computer concordances and attempt to prove me mistaken. There are two occasions in the Old Testament where a person proclaimed a fast calling the Jews to fast for a specific occasion for a certain limited period of time. But there are no commands in the Mosaic law for Israelites to fast, either publicly or privately. And the prophet Joel calls the Jewish people to consecrate a fast twice, reflecting God's summons to his rebellious people, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So after the prophetic announcements of God's judgment against the idolatrous Jews, he calls them to fast as an expression of their repentance on that specific occasion. Now many folks assume that the command to afflict yourselves on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 was intended to include fasting. And that is what Jews began to practice at some point in their history. But that afflict yourselves means to fast remains unclear and an assumption. From verses like Psalm 35, 13, which says, I have afflicted myself with fasting, it would seem that it needs to be made explicit with the actual word fasting for there to be a reference to fasting in the phrase afflict yourselves. In other words, you can afflict yourselves in lots of different ways and Fasting is one way to do that. Fasting accompanies prayer very often throughout the Bible, which may reflect the simple reality that preparing and eating food takes time and focus. And if a person wishes to focus intensely on talking with God, that person may ignore felt hunger and set aside the normal practice of preparing and eating food. There may be some personal value in the practice, but let's be careful about insisting that for Christians, it is inherently something that will improve your spiritual life or that it's something that every Christian ought to do. 
The Bible never, as far as I can tell, explains a special spiritual significance for fasting. Now, I'm sure that many of you could share experiences of how fasting has helped you personally. And there are tons of books out there that talk about how fasting increases spiritual power. One writer even called it a spiritual atomic bomb to destroy strongholds of evil and usher in a great revival and spiritual harvest around the world. Those books often claim that fasting enables spiritual breakthroughs and that fasting can guarantee certain answers to prayer. And those books contain story after story as evidence that fasting caused these wonderful things to happen in their lives. I remain skeptical of those stories. Some of them have been examined and shown to be fabricated. But I think most of them are the result of failing to heed a well-known principle from science that should apply in theology as well, and especially when you're evaluating your experiences. Correlation does not necessarily imply causation. You line up two separate things in your life, and you say one caused the other. For example, you might say, I got a check in the mail that covered a bill that I couldn't pay because I fasted twice last week. So two things happened. You got a check in the mail and you fasted twice last week. You have chosen to connect those two events as cause and effect. Could it be that God simply worked in someone's heart that week to send you the exact amount of money that you needed completely by His grace, apart from any consideration of whether or not you fasted. God nowhere in the Bible, as far as I can tell, ever promises any kind of specific benefit to come from fasting. Jesus did say in the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, that your Father will reward you if you fast properly. When we looked at that passage in Matthew 6, we emphasized how the reward promised seemed to be heavenly, eternal rewards, not so much temporary, earthly rewards like money in the bank. And the reward is not so much promised for fasting itself, but for the attitude and the motive while fasting. In light of this biblical framework for fasting, the facts that fasting is never commanded for God's people and no spiritual significance is ever specified for fasting, I view fasting as something we could label a cultural practice that when done with a certain attitude or for a certain purpose may provide some benefit for the individual who chooses to fast. Fasting was common as an expression of mourning and grief, repentance, or lamenting, because of some crisis. And you can see those purposes clearly in the Old Testament examples of fasting. Also, corporate fasting is common in Scripture, with two examples of Christians fasting together in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, for example, the leaders of the church in Antioch fasted and prayed before they sent Paul and Barnabas out on mission, which might mean no more than that the leaders prayed through lunch without eating. I think it's corporate fasting in particular that is in view in our passage this morning. The disciples of John the Baptist as a group were fasting. 
The Pharisees, as a group, were fasting. The question is, will the disciples of Jesus, as a group, fast? Jesus only fasted once, as far as we know, for 40 days prior to the beginning of his public ministry. But once he stepped into the limelight as the groom, celebration time began and fasting time ceased. Jesus taught on the attitude one should have when fasting. Jesus' fasting and Christian fasting seems to reflect an expression of neediness and dependence on God that is appropriate when praying. But we must not conclude from these passages that fasting makes God more likely to answer our prayers in particular ways or that there's some kind of special power that comes from fasting. I don't think that idea is supported in Scripture at all. Finally, to reiterate this point from another angle, let me just say one more thing about fasting. If you never fast as a Christian, I don't believe you're being disobedient to Scripture, and I don't believe you're thereby somehow a spiritually anemic or second-class Christian. You may not be missing anything at all, in fact. A lot of weight is often put on the fact that Jesus says, when you fast, in the Sermon on the Mount, People draw the conclusion from this way of stating things that Jesus certainly expected all of his followers to fast at times. And at the end of verse 15 in our passage here this morning, he says, then they will fast. Again, seeming to express an expectation that all of his followers will fast. However, there's reason to reconsider this way of understanding what Jesus says. First, when we see what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6... There is something different about fasting than the other items Jesus mentions in that passage. He says, when you give to the needy, and when you pray, and when you fast, both praying and giving to the needy are commanded elsewhere in Scripture, repeatedly, of all of God's people. But as we've noted, fasting is nowhere commanded of all of God's people, specifically in Scripture. Secondly, if we recognize fasting as a cultural practice then we can hear Jesus addressing his disciples as Jews. Jesus could expect them to fast because they were Jews, not because they were obeying some command in Scripture, because there isn't one, and not because they were his followers. So I don't think Jesus is laying down an expectation or a veiled command for his followers to fast. Instead, he's extending the freedom to fast. If you want to fast, there is a proper way and a proper time to do so. And there is an improper way and an improper time to do so. After the groom is taken away, Jesus' disciples may fast, which is an appropriate way to translate that last phrase in verse 15. So even though I don't think we are expected or commanded to fast as Christians, if you find yourself distracted by food... Or if you could look at your life and say that food might be an idol for you, you might find some benefit in fasting for the fight against your sin by intentionally abstaining for a period of time, maybe even regularly. If you gain a healthy obsession with prayer and studying the scriptures, you might find yourself skipping a few meals along the way. Ultimately, I concur with William Hendrickson, who writes, Jesus does not say that his followers must fast, neither does he forbid them to fast if that is what they wish to do. In certain circumstances, he seems to regard fasting as entirely proper. 
So, for the time being, while Jesus is on the earth, the disciples that are following him will not be fasting for any reason whatsoever. It's celebration time. Jesus gives two illustrations after this in verses 16 and 17 to elaborate and press home that very point that the It's not the right time for fasting here. Look at verses 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So he uses two common images from their everyday life. The first one is from the mundane realm of laundry repair. He gives a very practical illustration here. If you're going to pat if you get a, a hole in your pants and you need to patch it, you have to properly shrink and prepare the patch before you put it on. If you don't do that, if you get a fresh patch that's never been washed, never been shrunk, never been properly prepared and you put it on your old pants and then you throw your pants in the wash, they will shrink the patch will shrink and it will pull away from the place where the hole was and it will rip your pants even further. So get Jesus' point here. He's talking about fasting and he's saying, if my disciples were to fast while I'm here for party time, it would be spiritually damaging to them. This is parallel to his instruction in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, if you fast in the wrong way, if you fast like the hypocrites, you are only incurring God's judgment. Fasting can be harmful if done the wrong way or at the wrong time. That's Jesus' point. He presses the same exact point home with a second image from wine production. He says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. So old wineskins, we're talking about an animal skin that's been prepared for the purpose of carrying wine. So if you've got an old one that you've used a lot, it's dried out and become brittle. And so if you put new wine, that is juice freshly pressed from the grapes, and you put that in that old, dry, brittle container, what's going to happen? The juice is going to ferment. It's going to expand. It's going to apply pressure on that brittle substance, and it's going to blow a hole in it. And guess what? No wine no wineskins. Nobody gets to enjoy it. It's spilled on the ground. It's totally ruined. And that's again the point. Fasting while Jesus is around, fasting at the wrong time, is harmful, damaging, destructive. But he gives the corollary in this case as well. So instead, you put new wine in new wineskins. And he's He's saying, again, the juice freshly pressed from a grape needs to go inside a skin that's just been recently ripped off an animal. Sorry for the gross image. Some of you are familiar with taxidermy kinds of things, and so it doesn't gross you out, but sorry to everybody else. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about. And if you do that, then it is flexible and pliable so that when that juice expands and ferments, it will flex with it, and it will be okay. And everybody will get to enjoy the wine in the wineskin. That's the point. It's time, now that Jesus is here, to do things differently. The old ways have to be set aside. And he's probably got his crosshairs on the traditional practices of the Pharisees. 
And this particular way of fasting, timing for fasting, was one of those that's going to have to go for Jesus' disciples while he's there. It's not time to be mourning. It's time to be celebrating because Jesus is bringing the new kingdom in. And he is the bride, the groom, the bridegroom who has arrived to restore the marriage relationship with his people. So he's here. It's not time for fasting. Now, while he's having this conversation, we get an interruption of sorts. We get two encounters smushed together, an encounter between Jesus and a man and Jesus and a woman. Uh, And in in these two encounters, we see faith on display. This man is going to express faith. This woman is going to express faith. And some things are going to happen. And we're meant to see here, in light of the teaching that just happened, this is a new kind of faith that's on display here in this man and this woman. There's newness in their faith. And this newness is appropriate because Jesus is bringing the newness of the kingdom here and now. So as we look at these two stories, these two encounters together, we're going to look at them a piece at a time. They're familiar in many ways, but let's start looking at the story, verses 18 and 19. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So here we're introduced to the faith of a grieving father. Now, I have to tell you, this story is told in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 5. This, these two encounters smushed together in Mark chapter 5 with a lot more detail. And I have to tell you that that account in Mark chapter 5 is my absolute favorite story in the Bible. So I'm going to be restraining myself from dipping too much over into that other account. We need to honor Matthew's telling of the story here and get the point. So I will hold myself back from exploring some of the wonderful things in the other passage. There are wonderful things here, too, and we're going to get those. But we will dip over there into that other account for some details along the way. So here we're introduced to a ruler. This is a synagogue ruler. Mark gives us his name. It's Jairus. This is a synagogue ruler in Capernaum. Now, a synagogue ruler, it's important to know a little bit about what he is and what he does. He's got more in common with the scribes and Pharisees than he has with the tax collectors and sinners. Okay? He's a synagogue president, is more like what his title would be. He presides over the synagogue, the building, and also the service, if you will, when Jews gather together to hear teaching from God's word. He's in charge, he's not the teacher. Scribes, uh, uh, synagogue rulers could be teachers sometimes, but many times they were not. They took care of buildings and grounds, as it were. But they also, another important feature of their job was to handle the scriptures, meaning they took care of the scrolls. They made sure that they were properly rolled up and preserved and stored and protected. And when the teacher comes to deliver a message from God's word, this synagogue ruler would be the one to bring out the scroll and roll it out for the rabbi to utilize for teaching. So very often, these men would spend a lot of time in the synagogue and a lot of time with the scriptures. Typically, they were, they had to be, they had to be qualified for the job. They had to be faithful in their Jewishness 
And part of that meant they had to be good students of the scriptures. That is important to understand for this particular man. So this synagogue ruler is probably in Capernaum. This is probably the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. That's where this is all set. So what we need to remember about that is Jesus has been in Capernaum for some time. It's become his ministry headquarters. So he will have taught in the synagogue of Capernaum. He will have done miracles in the synagogue at Capernaum and around. So it's likely that Jairus, this synagogue ruler, heard Jesus teach, saw him do these miracles. Now let's look at his faith. It's expressed in what he says to Jesus here. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And we need to think about how awesome this man's faith is in light of what we know about Jesus and in light of what he might have known about Jesus at this point. As far as we know, Jesus has not raised anyone from the dead at this point in his ministry. He's not done that before. He's not come to a dead person and then caused them to live again. This will be the first time. From Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know that in his ministry he does that to three different people, two children and one grown man named Lazarus. And so this is the first occasion that he's done that. So the question on the table is, how can this synagogue ruler believe that Jesus can do that? Why would he have reason to believe that Jesus can do that? Sure, Jesus can do lots of miracles. He's made lame men walk. He's cleansed lepers. He's healed all sorts of physical ailments. But (laughs) giving life to a dead person is another category. How does he believe this? And I think we should see that he believes this because he knows his Bible. He knows the Old Testament scriptures really well. And in those Old Testament scriptures, he would have read of two men in the Old Testament who gave life to two dead children, Elijah and Elisha. And so it may be that this man sees Jesus as a great prophet, like Elijah, like Elisha, so that like Elijah and like Elisha, perhaps God would use him to restore life to his dead daughter. That's probably where this man's profession of faith comes from. He knows the scriptures and he knows that Jesus has been going around in a prophetic-like ministry. And so he expresses his faith to Jesus and says, if you'll just come and you'll touch her, she'll live again. And so Jesus gets up to follow him to go to his home. And then he's interrupted. The procession is interrupted by a bleeding woman. And so here we get to see the faith of a bleeding woman. Look at verses 18 and, uh, sorry, verses 20 to 22. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. I love this story. (laughs) Um, This woman has been suffering for a long time, 12 years. Matt Mark, one of the reasons I love that account is he lays it out how bad her plight is. Matthew simply summarizes it. She's been bleeding for 12 years, probably not constantly, but there's something wrong with her body that for 12 years she's been bleeding irregularly 
all the time. And so what we need to see in that is to recognize what her situation would be. She is an outcast from society because of this and has been for 12 years. If she's bleeding like this, she is ceremonially unclean. That means she is forbidden from coming to the synagogue to hear God's word being taught. She is forbidden from bringing animals to the temple in Jerusalem to have her sins forgiven through sacrifice. She is forbidden from fellowshipping with God's people in any way whatsoever. She is forbidden from touching another human being or being touched by another human being for 12 years. She has been isolated. She has been ostracized and rejected. If she had a family, she will have had to have left them. If she's married, if she was married, it's likely that she would have been divorced. Because in their culture, she would not have been able to be intimate with her husband, and he would have rejected her, most likely. If, she, if this started before she got married, which seems likely given the duration here for 12 years, she would not be able to get married or have children. No hope, no prospects of relationship in that way. And so here, she wants to sneak up on Jesus and get her healing, and get gone. That's what she wants, right? She wants to sneak up in the midst of the crowd because she's not supposed to be there. She's not supposed to be in public among people who might rub shoulders with her and become unclean from touching her. She's not allowed to do that. So she's going to be fully veiled to conceal her identity. She's going to sneak in among the crowd, and she, she believes, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. That's her profession of faith in verse 21. This woman thinks that if she can just touch the fringe of his garment, that's probably referring to the tassels that Jewish men would have worn hanging loose from their cloak or their robe. She wants to touch that tassel, and she believes that if she would do that, then she'll get her healing and she'll be gone. I press that point home to you because I want you to see there's something wrong with her faith. Her faith is mingled with superstition. Her faith is confused and incomplete. She thinks she can get her healing and get out of there without having an encou- a personal encounter with Jesus. That's all she wants. She wants to get healed, and understandably so. She's desperate at this point. Twelve years is a long time to be ostracized from society and your own family. And one other detail that grips me from Mark's account is we, he tells us that she had tried remedies. She had spent money on doctors, physicians, healers, and she spent all of her money, and she only grew worse in her condition. Some of you might be able to relate to that. And so she's at the, her last rope, and she's heard about Jesus healing people in impossible situations. And she believes that I just have to, if I can just touch something connected to him. That's superstition, folks. And I draw that to your attention because Jesus welcomes her in her confusion. Jesus welcomes her approach even though she doesn't have it all right. And I, every time I read this story, I sense a rebuke, a personal rebuke to me. Because I am often not patient 
with other people's confusion, other people's blend of superstition with Christianity, so common in this country and in this context where we live. We are a very superstitious people over here. Not that they're not in other parts of the world, I suppose. But it's easy to mix superstition with Christianity. And I'm critical of that. Jesus welcomes her. He addresses her fear in verse 22. He addresses her, take heart. It's the same phrase he used with the paralyzed man, the man who couldn't walk earlier in this chapter that we looked at last week. She's terrified. Luke tells us that explicitly. You see, Jesus won't let her go home and just get her healing. She does. She, she touches the fringe of his garment and it worked. He got, she got what she wanted and she was ready to creep on out of there without being noticed by Jesus or anybody. That was her expectation. Jesus stopped the whole procession. And he calls her out in front of everybody. And so Luke tells us that she's terrified. She falls down in front of him, trembling in terror. And so he says to her, take heart, take courage, don't be afraid, daughter. I assure you, this is probably the first tender word she has heard directed to her in over 12 years. Jesus is so tender with this woman who is suffering so much. Her suffering has just ended. And he addresses her as daughter. And he invites her out in front of the crowd, which would be terrifying. And I wonder why he does this. I think he does this actually for her benefit. Because now he draws her out and he verifies in front of everybody her healing, her cleansing so that the whole crowd knows she's not a threat. She's not a danger to them. There should be no judgment of this woman, no fear that she's going to contaminate them because Jesus has solved that problem. And so he brings her out in front of everybody and speaks to her this way so that all will know that she is welcome back among her people and in her family and even welcome before her God. Now, Jesus' statement needs to be considered carefully here. He says, your faith has made you well. It's important to note probably here that Matthew uses a salvation word. Some translations will put it that way. Your faith has saved you. We see that statement made by Jesus several times in the Gospels. And so it is here. Your faith has saved you. And we have to recognize that it's not her faith that saved her or that healed her. Jesus healed her, right? Her faith was confused and distorted and incomplete and mixed with superstition. It was in the right person, and it was her faith in Him that brought her healing. But we need to be careful about taking this statement out of its context and saying and, and elevating faith as though it were the cause of her healing. Jesus is the cause of her healing. Jesus' power is what saved her. So the statement is legitimate, but you have to understand what Jesus is saying. It's not faith by itself. It's not faith just because it's faith. That's the key element. 
As I have said many times, it is, faith is, deci- is necessary, but not decisive. We talk about this all the time in terms of salvation. Paul is very careful with the prepositions he uses when he talks about salvation. Salvation is by grace, through faith. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. And so it is of of her healing, but it is not the cause. The cause is God's grace. The cause is Jesus' power to her. Her faith is necessary. She had to trust Him. She had to approach Him. And even in her confused approach, she gets what she came for, but much, much more. You see, Jesus won't let her go with her confusion, won't let her alone with her misguided belief. She came to the right place, she came to the right person, but her understanding of what was going on was skewed, and yet, it truly worked. (laughs) She really did get saved, not because of her faith. Her faith was necessary, but not decisive. Your faith has saved you. Her faith in Jesus. And Jesus exercised His power, and He healed this woman. And then He brought her into contact and engagement with Him. He's not interested in just handing out healings. He's interested in personally engaging in relationship with sinful people and suffering people. And so he won't let her go with that simple reality. And I want to challenge all of you to consider, as I am challenged every time I read this passage, how we treat other people in their confusion and in their misguided faith. We can be very judgmental and very critical of other people in their profession of faith in Jesus, when it's mixed up. We can be so judgmental and so callous. I'm talking to myself here as much as I am to any of you. And we can say stupid things like, you know, they're in in a church that teaches false teaching. They can't be saved. They can't really know Jesus. We can say things like, you know, somebody in the Catholic church which has got a lot wrong. They they can't really know Jesus. They can't really be saved. And we need to hear from this story, yes, they can. Because it's not about the perfection of their faith. Yes, they must believe the truth about Jesus. But that's not to say that they might not have some error mixed in with that. We might say things about any other church where there's a false teacher teaching. Well, the the whole lot of them must be lost. No, Jesus gets past that. It's not a barrier to him. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to help people come out of that kind of thing and try to do what Jesus does. Again, he draws her out and he thereby corrects her misunderstanding. He connects with her personally because that's what had to happen. So, we need to feel the weight of that in our critical spirit and repent. We could all be a little bit more like Jesus in the way he treats suffering people especially. So, this woman's faith is mingled with superstition. She gets healed. Jesus' power flows out, heals her. He calls her out, engages with her personally, and then she's free to go. 
Verses 23 to 26 give us the rest of the story with Jairus and his daughter. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. I can't help but chuckle as I read this. <laughs> Such a serious situation, right? <laughs> and the girl is dead. So he approaches the house, and there's music, and there's singing, and the ESV says commotion at the house. This is their practice of hiring professional mourners. And I wish we still had that. Frankly, they understand something in Eastern cultures that still do this to this day, that we Westerners, we Americans, we don't grieve well. We don't handle mourning very well. And truly, nobody does. And that's why this was a practice and is a practice, because they recognize the power of music to impact the emotions, which, of course, can be a very bad thing, can be used to manipulate people, and often is. But in this case, these people were hired to play sad songs and sad music to help the family cry. And that's a good thing because we need to cry when we've lost. We need to cry when we mourn. And having a stimulant like that is by God's design. God designed music to stimulate our emotions in the right way. And, of course, we've twisted it and skewed it and used it in all the wrong ways. But the right way stands. So they've hired professional musicians. Jairus probably hired these musicians a few days before the girl died. He saw that she was on her deathbed and she was not going to get better. And so he hired these musicians to come. And then probably after hiring them, he either remembered or thought, well, maybe I should go see Jesus. And on the way, his faith is strengthened to the point that he could believe what he says here. She's dead. If you just come and touch her, she'll live. And so these mourners, these singers, they know death. They're professionals. They do this all the time. They know when somebody's dead. So when Jesus shows up and says, she's not dead, she's sleeping, they laugh at him because he hasn't even seen her. How does he know? He just walked up. What does he know about the situation? How could he possibly know? And so they laugh at him. They mock him. And I love the way Matthew puts this in verse 25. But when the crowd had been put outside, Matthew chooses a Greek word that's normally used for what Jesus does to demons. He casts them out. (laughs) They've been kicked out of the house. And then Jesus goes in. And touches her, and she wakes up. Now, at the end of all of this, so another question we could ask is, was Jesus lying to them, to put the point bluntly, when he said, the girl is not dead, but sleeping? Was he lying? Of course he's not. Right? (laughs) But what is going on here? He says, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And I I suppose we have to view this from Jesus' vantage point, right? 
He knows what he's about to do. And in the presence of Jesus, even death is not, a per- is not permanent. And so we see here, when it comes to Jesus, the impermanence of death. And he is able to speak this way, not just euphemistically. The word sleeping is often used as a euphemism, a, a nice way of talking about death in the Bible. But he's actually talking about something else. He knows that she's about to wake up as though she had just had a nap. Now what's interesting is to pay attention to the way this happens here. Matthew says in verse 26, the report of this went through all that district. Now what Matthew doesn't tell us, and Mark and Luke do, is that there were eyewitnesses to what Jesus did. He took the family, the parents, into the room with him and he took, took his disciples to see what was going to happen. Crowds weren't privy to it, and the mourners weren't. And so, what report went through all that district? Now, we also know from those other gospel accounts that Jesus told the parents, don't tell anybody what I did. And we don't know whether they obeyed or not. But I suspect they did. And I suspect that the report that went out came largely from the mourners and the crowds. Think about it. The mourners knew that the girl had died. They laughed at Jesus when he said otherwise. But then they're kicked out of the house. They don't see what Jesus actually does. So the next thing they know, the little girl's walking out of the house in front of them, alive and well. What are they going to conclude? They don't have a category for, uh, he might have just raised her from the dead. Their assumption would probably be, oh, I guess we were wrong. We must have been wrong. It's got to happen once in a lifetime at least. That even the professionals get it wrong. So I suspect the report that went through all this district was merely that this girl, we thought she was dead. She, but it turns out she was just in a really bad coma. And Jesus woke her up and healed her. And one of the reasons I think that is because if the report had gone around that Jesus was raising people from the dead, don't you think people would be bringing their dead family members to Jesus all the time? I mean, don't you think? And yet, as far as we know from the Gospels, he only does it three times. To two children and one man named Lazarus. And when word about Lazarus got around, the Jewish leaders really amped up their plans to kill him. So there are reasons for him to want them to keep quiet. But even in their report, I don't think they were telling everybody, oh yeah, he raises the dead, even though he will make that claim for himself in just a, a little bit in a certain, to a certain group of people. So in all of this, we see the newness that Jesus has brought. The newness of the kingdom of God is here, and that newness involves life, not death. Death does not get the, word, the last word in the kingdom of God. Death does not get the last word when we're talking about Jesus, the author of life. And so as always in these passages, the main question on the table is, who is this man? Jesus. What is this new thing that he's doing? His kingdom is a kingdom of life. His kingdom is one where death has been vanquished. He appeared in a vision to his disciple John and said in Revelation 1, 17 and 18, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, 
I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the same man who said to mourning Martha, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? And that is the question I must put to you this morning. Do you believe this? Do you have this new faith for the new life that Jesus provides? Do you believe Jesus can meet your most desperate needs? Do you believe that Jesus can give you a life that never ends? Jesus can change your life permanently. He's actually really good at it. If you do believe in this man, are you walking in the new way of the Spirit? Are you living in a way that's fitting for the new creation? Because that's where your citizenship is. So let's pray to the end that we would live it out faithfully. Father, thank you for this picture of newness that's been offered and extended to us. We thank you for Jesus and the way that he overturns our preconceived notions. He keeps surprising us. And I suspect that will be true for eternity. So thank you for the wonder that we can all sit and look at these things and be amazed again and again and again. And we thank you that you keep doing the new thing in our lives. We long for the completion of the project, as it were. We long for the consummation of the marriage. We long for the new creation to dominate every corner of the universe. And we long for the suffering of this life to be gone. And so we thank you that that day is coming and it is guaranteed to us by this man whose word never fails, whose power is unchallengeable and uncontestable. And we thank you that you've called us up into this kingdom, that you've welcomed us in our confusion, in our weakness, in our frailty, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for accomplishing this great work in us and for us. We pray that you would keep growing us and keep changing us, conforming us to the image of your Son, thank you for walking with us through life in the dark places and in the times of joy and celebration. Help us to follow you faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess it's up to me to make announcements. Pastor.